Left. Right. Right now in 2022, there are two things that just don't adjust for inflation. You look at a gallon of milk, roughly the same when you account for inflation. You look at a vehicle, roughly the same when you account for inflation. You look at gasoline, roughly the same. Look at the price of a TV, it's actually come down quite a bit. Now, you want to talk about education and you want to talk about home loans. These things, home loans and the price of a home more specifically, and that is the topic of this episode. Today, we are talking about the cost of buying a home and the surprising fact, and this really surprised me in the research, as to what is leading the cost of homes so astronomically high. And I promise you, it has nothing to do with coronavirus right now, and it has a lot less to do with, uh, with general interest in uh, moving out of cities. So listen on, let me know what you think, and I will catch you guys on the flip side. This is Sip Talk. Grab a drink and enjoy. We are live. This is Sip Talk, episode 182. My name is Justin DiGiulio out of my basement in New Jersey, joined by James, the Bosnator Boswell out of sunny South Carolina. James is a philosopher, a professional referee, a bartender, and most exciting of all, an accountant. James, how's it hanging down there in sunny South Carolina? Uh, it's pretty wonderful right now. Uh, late late <laughs> April, got- early May is beautiful. Like, we get some thunderstorms every once in a while. The weather's great. You want to be outside. Um, not as good as San Diego, though. But that's just because San Diego wins every every day. Well, yeah, that's a uh, different, different climate over there. Uh, but I noticed you got four or five buttons unbuttoned on your uh, your button up there. So you're really... I think uh, it's three. One. Uh, one it's it's Two. <laughs> two. <laughs> it's a, a pretty low V you got there. Uh, so I assume... It well, I figure be... that they're turning in for the cleavage, so. <laughs> I assume it must be pretty nice and uh, pretty nice weather. Pretty warm down there. Up here, it's still very cold. Today was an icy, icy day. I got a, got a chip in the windshield yesterday, and today it had, the chip had spread to a nice crack all the way across the windshield. So that was a nice, pleasant surprise. Um, Time to replace it. that. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Actually, it's a new windshield because there was one last year. Uh, but either way, we're, we got to get into the topic. We got to dive right in. Uh, say hello to Lisa on the live and anybody else who is listening to us live. You can tune in by clicking the link in my Instagram profile while we're live on YouTube, Facebook, Twitch, Twitter, TikTok, Instagram. Um, don't forget to subscribe on YouTube and the audio podcast platforms today. We are talking about James. This is really your topic. Uh, yeah, I, I want, I've titled it "The Housing Bubble Is About to Blow," um, but but I'm curious your angle on this one. Well, I think that's accurate, but it's kind of from the opposite direction of the last time the housing bubble burst. This is one where, like, I've been one. I work in mortgages, so I see it every day. But seeing tons of news articles about how unaffordable housing is what prompted this one was somewhere in canada i think around like vancouver um 
the builders are complaining that they're having a hard time being able to meet the ban the demand for new construction because the workers that build the houses can't afford to live there to build the houses. Wow, that is uh that is interesting. Yeah, because you know, like most construction jobs, like you're going to live in the city in which you're building things. Like there's not it's not like travel nurses where they just kinda like go around the country for different gigs. You're a construction worker, you live in a city and you build things in that city. So nobody that does construction work can afford to live in Vancouver, so they can't build new homes because they can't build no homes? New homes. <laughs> no, okay. Um, yeah, but this is this is a pretty complex topic because there are so many moving parts when we talk about inflation, when we talk about housing costs. Should we should we lead with the kind of inflation and the data we have on, on that first? Because I like what you put together, a uh, little chart. Um, I don't want to talk about that at first. Like that okay. That's kind of reference numbers. To, to bounce back around on, um, especially when you look at things like the cost of gas and the cost of milk. And like you can look at some consumables that stay pretty flat when you adjust for inflation, and you can see some that go up and some that go down. So when you look at, like, housing is probably the most important thing because any other costs, you don't even really have a chance to spend money on those things because you don't have a place to live. Like that's probably the most basic human need is well, housing. Yeah, and it takes up the majority of the income. I mean, I guess food would be the most basic human need, but because you're not going to die if you don't have housing, but you're definitely going to die if you don't have food. Sure, but housing takes up housing takes up a greater amount of your budget, and shelter is is a secondary to to food. But you kind of need both to have an existence. Yeah, um, and also been hearing my brother in San Diego complain about his inability to afford housing, and he's making almost $100,000 a year, and there's, like, nothing he can afford to buy out there. The, he he lives in, in, a, in a condo building right now where he's renting out an individual unit, and He's spending probably about twenty four or twenty five hundred a month in rent, and he's splitting that with a roommate. And do you know what the the units are going for? Because like every once in a while, one of them will sell. Yeah. Do you know well, how much they're going for? Um, Just take a guess. So, so he's spending his he, the rent on his is twenty five hundred. So mm -hmm. we can assume that twenty five hundred covers the mortgage on that property. Obviously, the person didn't get the mortgage just now. And my guess is probably somewhere over the last decade, this person has a mortgage. That's just, just a general guess with no information. Um, but I'm going to guess that that $2,500 is going to cover maybe a $450,000 mortgage. You, we could look, I don't, I'm just throwing numbers out there. But I'm going to guess that that would be a million, it's a two bedroom? I mean, his is, yeah, two bed, two bath. Two bed. It's a, it's about the same size as our apartment was when we lived together in Charleston. And it's about three blocks from the beach in Ocean Beach, San Diego. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine a, a two-bedroom condo in San Diego, super close to the beach, being less than a million dollars. That, But that's – I have no I – I don't know the economy over there. That's So I'm, I'm super so curious. The, I the think reality. the unit two doors down from him 
sold for about 790 wow, about okay. a week ago. So you're not too far off. And on $100,000, that like, I don't see how you can afford an $800,000 condo. No. What, so what's the what would a mortgage? You should know this pretty pretty quickly. Mortgage be on eight hundred thousand, like well, thirty. When I ran the numbers for a six hundred and fifty thousand dollar condo, um, with mortgage plus property taxes and the HOA fees because it's a condo. Yeah. Um, he's looking at about forty five hundred a month. Hmm. Which is almost double what his current rent is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's. Yeah, he's he's doing very well in terms of his rent compared to the area. But yeah, but just still the fact that he's paying off somebody else's mortgage, and they, they might have not have a mortgage rent. anymore. Apparently, what? it was an old person that lived there that died, and so I think the family inherited it, and they're just renting it out because they don't have a use for it. Oh, okay. So maybe more. I don't know how long ago. What are you drinking down there, by the way? I got my last bush ice. Next time I go to the grocery store, I might even change it up. Oh, what 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 are you thinking? You may change it to. Well, it's hard to go with anything cheaper, so I might have to go more expensive. <laughs> uh, yeah, and what did you have in mind? I don't know. Um, something summery, maybe like uh, Pauliner or Francis Connor. I'm not familiar with either one of those. Hefeweizens, the yeah. unfiltered wheat beers. Mm. A good right. one will have like a real like taste and smell of like fresh bread. Mm. I love my bready beer. Uh, all right, so. So let's let's get into it. So we, you got your brother in San Diego. He's paying roughly what half of a current mortgage would be. He's making good money, but he couldn't afford to buy the place yeah. that he's in. And like to get like a house in Ocean Beach, you're looking at like probably 1.2 million to well considerably more than that. So typically, the way that it works is that people's rent are going to be similar to what a mortgage monthly cost is just a little the rent will be a little bit higher than what a mortgage would be the the difference is that you know you're renting because you don't have that down payment saved so traditionally you know you're trying to save a down payment but you're paying a little bit of a higher rate than the existing mortgages because you know that's that's just how it goes they yeah. get there well, they got a mortgage rent will be slightly higher than your mortgage but when you're paying the mortgage, that's not all of your housing costs because you're responsible for the property taxes. You're responsible for the repairs. Well, yeah. So if I, and just, you know, kind of for easy numbers here, I buy a $100,000 single family house and, uh, you know, my monthly costs are, say, uh, $1,200 with taxes, everything included. So I'm going to rent it for uh, fourteen or $1,500. So the, the person there is paying more than what I'm paying, but I got there first. Well, so, it's also you're the one who's responsible for the repairs and, and upkeep of the place, and you have to factor that in above the normal cost of servicing the mortgage and stuff. Sure, but if that person wants to buy property, they're going to get in after me, right? So they're going to end up paying a little bit higher anyways, and they have to take the time to save that down payment. Now, it shouldn't be that. And so he, your brother's in a unique situation that he's not paying over what the current mortgages in the area are going for. No, so presumably, presumably somebody in a comparable apartment to his renting a comparable condo to what he's in right now, if they're selling for 850000 they would be paying 4500 bucks. 
So yeah. he's got a good deal. He's not indicative of the rest of the market. No, he's lucky then because – so I want to get into some of the causes of this problem because um, like you hear this all the time. and We were talking about this earlier today that people in our generation and the generation just one younger than ours feel like they might be in a position where they're perpetually renting where they don't expect to be able to buy a home at all because they're not affordable. Well, let's let's look at, let's just on that, sorry to stop you, but let's look at what a down payment's going to look like on an $850,000. Well, I think that you can't, I don't want to talk about the San Diego uh, real estate market because it's one of the most expensive in the country. I think it's better to talk about a more average real estate market than like, so if you look at the spreadsheet that I sent you and you look at like what's the median price of a home right now, so I'm seeing 428000 So let's use that number instead because that's going to be more realistic for people. Okay, and that's a bit higher than what we've been trending, but but that is what it is right now. So Yeah. Um, well, so it depends. Traditionally, people would say like do a 10% or a 20% down payment. Mm-hmm. and. I don't think that that's actually good advice. And there are like, so when I got my house, I did 5%. I could have done as low as three. I chose five because I wanted to have a little bit lower of a starting mortgage, but I could have done 3%. Um, there are some government programs. FHA allows um, you to do a home with no down payment. Yeah, that's very wild. But... Um, so I would say let's go with 3%, which is the kind of the standard bottom line bottom amount that you can do so three percent on four hundred and twenty eight thousand is going to be about thirteen thousand bucks i think we need to be doing something that's a little bit higher than that well I, let's do five percent so four hundred twenty eight thousand times five percent is a reasonable yeah so that's twenty one four that okay. you're going to be dropping and that's not including the closing costs yeah attorney fees uh the financing yeah. fee that you're going to have to pay for getting the loan you're probably looking at another six or seven thousand, at least, in closing costs. So you're looking at about thirty thousand dollars out of pocket, um, just to get into the, just to get in the door. Um, and Jeff and May says, in my area, in the past few years, I've seen many new investors getting into the game. They've been overpaying, which is why the rents are increasing so drastically. They need that higher rate. If not, they'll lose the property, and this is contributing to the bubble. I want to get to that in well, a minute. That's exactly where we are going with this conversation. But James, yes. I interrupted you to just throw throw some numbers out there. I'll let you continue. I got a lot to say, so I'm yeah. Just... Well, so so Jeff is onto something, and that's like that's very much where we're headed. We're just not there yet. But okay. great comment. Go ahead. Uh, so yeah, like thirty thousand dollars on four hundred and thirty thousand dollar purchase is completely reasonable, and well, what's, for what's some a... people. That's tough to be able to save up thirty thousand dollars. Well, let's look at let's look at what a mortgage payment for that would look like. Give me a minute. I'll run the okay. numbers. Because my guess is, if you were, I want to put it into context about what somebody who would be looking at a uh, four hundred thousand dollar home with five percent down, what their rent would be looking at as an alternative. So, so using payment? the average interest rate that things you're going for today which is about five and a half percent four hundred and thirty thousand thirty year loan twenty four forty one so you're paying twenty four hundred a month uh for your mortgage that's before um, before property tax so let's call it let's call it twenty eight hundred on the low end 
Now to rent that home, that would be three grand at, at the bare minimum. Easily. So, so you have two, if you want this home, you have two options. You pay three grand in rent or you pay $2,800 a month in a mortgage with 30 grand down. Actually, so I want to I want to revise that rent figure, and I want to hit on like so. I sent you the article from Slate about firms like BlackRock buying large amounts of residential properties. I want to get back to some of the other points in that article, but one thing that came out of that article from their financial disclosures is they had about sixteen billion dollars worth of assets and about two billion dollars worth of rental income for the same period, which tells you that. Very basic numbers. They're they're pricing their rents on their property to be able to pay back in about eight years. Okay. So if you take the purchase price of the property, divide that by eight, that's the annual rent. Divide that by twelve, that's the monthly rent. So if you take four hundred and thirty thousand, divide it by eight, divide that by twelve, I get forty four eighty. As your rent, so, they, so they'd be charging forty four eighty for that. And so part of the problem is, um, like the article talks about how traditionally the payback period. If you look at the property value to the to the rent, the ratios used to be like fifteen or twenty to one. That would be considered like a good a good deal for the borrower or the the renter. And so you've got these firms that are buying up these properties, and we'll get into like how that pushes out like usual buyers but not only are they pushing out these buyers but they're also pricing the rents really really high okay but and yeah and the issue is that the rent prices are high and because you have more buyers in the game the sales price are higher i just mm -hmm. want to go back to to fully contextualizing this uh this four hundred and twenty thousand dollar home with 30 grand down and a what do we say twenty eight to three thousand dollar monthly payment if you yeah, have a mortgage take, on it. If we do the down payment of five percent, then it's gonna be a four hundred and eight thousand dollar loan. You're looking at twenty three seventeen before insurance and in, um taxes. So, so let's call it let's call it uh two thousand eight hundred dollars a month if you purchase the property. Fine. Okay. What what's a salary have to be for someone who is earning uh, what, what does somebody have to be earning to afford a twenty-eight hundred dollar a month payment? Um, My traditional guess is about ninety thousand, seventy-eight, seventy-eight thousand. That's at forty percent debt, forty-three percent debt to income, which is kind of like a, a gold standard in the the industry. Is that you don't want to be at higher than forty-three percent DTI. Okay. So to afford that house, at and that means that forty-three percent of your money every single month. Is going towards servicing the mortgage. I was thinking it was thirty percent. I, I that's the first time I heard forty three. Uh, so. If you want to do thirty percent, then you need to be making one hundred and twelve thousand. Okay, all right. Interesting. On your all own. Right. All right. So, so what we have, so that's that's kind. Of, let's back up to the person that's earning a hundred and what was it, hundred and twelve, hundred and twelve thousand. They're buying a four hundred and twenty, four hundred and thirty dollar house with roughly thirty grand down. Now, what's happening? And their rental alternatives are well are for the, the I using the figures that BlackRock is charging. That four hundred and thirty thousand dollar house would be charging rent of about forty four hundred. So, the problem is also that you can't buy a house for 28,000 right now because 
there is a better offer ahead of yours that's likely all cash and fast close by a company like BlackRock. So you're kind of forced into this rental pool. So you really have to be way ahead of the game with, you know, being the first offer in and uh, being ready to close as soon as possible to even be able to compete. I'll give you an example. Um, We had uh, a loan cancel on us earlier this week. And the reason was it was a purchase. It was a $520,000 purchase, 400 and something thousand dollar loan. So they're doing like 20% down. Um, five hundred and something thousand dollar cost, which is a solid, solid buyer. Yeah, exactly. And the appraisal came in, and the appraisal said that the house needed about two hundred thousand dollars worth of repairs. Holy shit! Yeah. So what did the bank say? So the well, the buyer wanted to renegotiate, which makes complete sense. Um, and the seller said no. So the deal fell through because the buyer didn't want to buy a house at with $200,000 worth of repairs on it because that's not what their offer was. Their offer was for a house that needed $0 in repairs. So they were going to like I'm sure that they could have settled on something in between, but the seller said no. The seller and, still thinks that they can probably get the full asking price even with the $200,000 of repairs. Yeah, and those repairs are less costly for a giant corporation who's going to come in, has uh, the workers on staff, has the construction contracts out. That's not going to be paying the full price because they, they're able to buy yeah, in bulk. But that's what you're up against in, in this right now is that even if you get a deal or whatever, like if it falls through, people are just like, yeah, I don't need to lower my price. I'll just wait a little longer. So what I want to get into is what's and this is I, I, we have some interesting data that we want to share with you and we want to discuss the facts the different aspects in the economy that are driving up the housing costs what we are leaning to, I believe James and I are on the same page as this we're leaning towards one of the biggest factors being your corporate investors your corporate your big companies that are coming in and taking massive amounts of the housing stock paying all cash so one important thing about that is the type of housing stock that they're buying yeah they're, well they're, let me just let me guess on this because i i didn't even finish reading the full article that we discussed but i want to throw a guess out there and you can correct me but here's what i'm thinking typically investors would want multifamilies and they would want apartment complexes i have a feeling the issue is that these these investment companies corporations are coming in buying single family homes yes what type of single family homes if you think about like because you can have a single family home that is like an eight thousand square foot mansion or you could have a single family home that's a like single wide trailer in a trailer park so give me a like a market segment that you think they're focusing on for buying these single family homes interesting well uh it would have the biggest impact on average housing prices, I think, if they were buying the ones in greatest demand. And I would imagine that would be what we would call entry-level homes. Am I accurate on that? Yeah. It's going to be like the low to mid-range homes that people tend to buy as their first home while they're still getting themselves established. 
both in terms of professional and income, like professional career and income wise. So people so, in their mid to late twenties or early thirties. Yeah, and it's not going to be like a giant home, like the 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 McMansions or like the brand new luxury buildings or whatever. That's well, not what firms like BlackRock are buying. They're buying research, the homes that were like built in the sixties, seventies, and eighties that were decently built, decently maintained, and still relatively affordable in not the super expensive neighborhoods and not the crappiest neighborhoods, but the the low ish to the mid neighborhoods of the middle class. Yeah, and that's where they're buying their homes. So the people who need the homes the most are competing against a private capital firm with a trillion dollars in assets. There, there's no literally a trillion dollars in assets. So I I actually learned today that entry level home is defined as under fourteen hundred square feet, and actually there are eighty percent less entry level homes being built now than there were in the nineteen seventies and and before that. So the number of entry level homes being built are considerably well, part of that is before. for the builders, it's less profitable for them to be building homes like that. Well, yeah, there's, there, you're making less profit per home sold. Yeah. So why, if you're a builder, why would you take offers for anything other than like the luxury stuff? Since right now there's such a backlog in demand and builders are slammed. So if you have as much work as you could possibly want and then some, why would you not be taking the most expensive contracts out there? Yeah. I mean, if, if your business is, is jam-packed already, yeah, uh, it doesn't make sense to take other small jobs. You take only the big ones, um, which, let's see, uh, I wanted to share about the cost of creating homes and the increase in that. So we know that cost of goods has gone up. Cost of labor has gone up. Uh, cost of fuel has gone up. Cost of general supplies, building supplies, hammers, nails, working supplies. Wood. And then also grossly, the cost of wood has gone up. Uh, the National Association of Home Builders says that lumber increase, uh, it's, the, the increase in the price of lumber has had an average increase in the price of homes of $18,600. That's just the cost of lumber adding to the cost of the final, final sale price. Um, but the yeah, the cost to create new homes and the cost of construction has skyrocketed. And that, you know, that really affects, you know, you're not going to let that eat into your cost of a building a, a $100,000 house. You, you know, no, you're, you're going to tack that onto the bar. You're going to. Yeah. But you're also going to be building a house that's now 400 or 600 or 800 or a million. Yeah. Because, you know, because you get more payback for the the, the buck there. So I think I want to talk a little bit about potential solutions here. Um, Are we too early for that? We're way too early for that, I feel like, because I really want to dig into the problem. And I want to I do want to hit the data that we have about the prices over the last 30 or 40 years. But also, I really spent some time trying to figure out why we have such a housing shortage. And it's odd because the population in the United States is not increasing at that vast of a rate. And in terms people, of, well, you can look at like population growth and compare that to housing price growth. And like in the past 10 years, but you have a certain number of people who live in a certain number of homes. If the number of people doesn't change, how is, how do we need more homes? Well, th that's what I'm getting to is I think okay. in the last 10 years, We've probably seen about 20 million people, so 330 to about 350, right? 
I didn't know we were that high, but I don't know. Uh, um, I thought we were still in that three thirty to three forty range. Um, you could ask Alexa. Except you're not an Alexa user, so. No, I don't trust it. Okay, right, three hundred thirty million. We'll go with in twenty twenty. So three hundred thirty. Okay. Um, population in the United States twenty ten was three oh nine. So okay. twenty million 20, people. In a so, yeah. Um, so just between, so between twenty ten and twenty twenty, looking at the inflation adjusted price of a house, we go from two ninety four to three sixty five. Wait, so, uh, hold on. So the data that you're citing here is what the cost of a house was in when? 2010 to 2020. 294 and... to 365. So the population went from 310 to 330. The population went from 294 to 365. Yeah, so the huge increase in, in prices, not not correlating. So it's not an increased population creating a shortage of housing because we have we all of a sudden have way more people than we had houses it's the housing supply has remained the, the the population has remained relatively steady compared to housing supply but for some reason housing costs are just completely blowing up uh and jeff says an issue is that the goods didn't go up at the rate due to manufacturing it's simple greed well I, I I think I understand what he's getting at. The, so the ho- the cost of housing has gone up. It doesn't fluctuate as much as the cost of other goods, but other goods other prices will come down. So oil goes up, it'll it'll come back down. Uh, goods that are in demand now because there's a bottleneck in the pipeline, those good prices I imagine will also come back down, and that'll have an effect on the inflation rate. But I don't see the housing cost rate, the housing cost, I don't see that going down. Because no. One, because um, the it, last time that we saw housing prices really correct downwards was because of the mortgage crisis 13 years ago. But that was an economic crisis, really like a one every 30 to 50 year event. And well, but it the, was also specifically targeted at the housing market well but here here was the issue with that bubble and how it burst that bubble burst because you had people who were in homes that suddenly the price the value of the home decreased and they owed more on the home than it was worth and they also couldn't afford to pay because there were many bad mortgages written they weren't they couldn't afford to pay what the home was worth well you're getting the cause and the effect wrong the cause was people were qualifying for mortgages that they couldn't afford. And when they eventually couldn't afford to pay for those mortgages anymore, the bank would foreclose on the property. And it was a spiral of increasing supply. And at the same time, all these people that are getting kicked out of homes are having terrible FICOs because their credit's been ruined from having a home that they couldn't afford. So you have a, a an explosion of supply at the same time that the demand is restricted by all these people that can't afford to buy a house. Yeah, kind of. I, I, de- I delivered it poorly, but it, it was self-fulfilling. And the cause was that bad mortgages were written and then people couldn't afford housing because bad mortgages were written. And then the 
it basically became impossible for people to buy homes. Now we don't have so much bad mortgages being written. The mortgages now are much more sound than they were before. So it's less likely we're going to have a lot of defaults on the loans like we did before. The The issue is that the cost of living in general is is rising so much. And these this also includes renters. Yeah, well, you know, when housing was really cheap in like 2010 and 2011, as all the supply was on the market and like most people were economically depressed and weren't able to afford, you know who bought all those homes? No. Bank? Investors. The okay. people that had the money. So like, because if you're an investor and you've got a ton of cash, you can, you can afford to take the risk on a property and say, this might not pay off for three or four years and just sit on it. Like, I don't have the ability to just, like, drop a whole bunch of money into something and say, if this doesn't work out for three or four years, I'll be okay. But if I had millions of dollars and I was put, but if I put half of that towards some houses and they don't pay off for a couple years, I've still got money in reserve. So because they have so much money, they, they can afford to run lean because their lean is a lot fatter than whatever my lean is. And yeah. so they, they were able to buy at a good opportunity and then but also, yeah, but rent it, out it, the places and make the money or or sell yeah, them back at a profit. But the, the corporations don't need to compete with the everyman because they have the money. One, they can they can afford more, but also if they need a mortgage, they're getting lower rates on the yeah, on their own money, basically, because they're not borrowing with a conventional mortgage. And then also most of them are buying in cash anyways. And they're recouping with rental yeah. dollars. Well, so here's another point that, that um, private comment I got um, is that when all these people that are retiring, all these boomers are retiring and they're moving somewhere else. So they might have they might have like a large house that they used when they were raising a family and now they don't need to live in such a large place. So instead of selling that house, what they're doing is they're renting it either on longer term rentals or they're just like doing or, or they're hiring a property manager and airbnb it so supply is not being replenished by people dying off or moving housing supply available for purchasing yes okay. yeah that's 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 a good comment um can we uh can we talk about these prices because i you know i know you weren't crazy about this data being super relevant to the greater the, point the wage of, data. I don't trust. I think I, I misinterpreted it. So don't the, use the wage data. Okay. Yeah. The, the I think there might have been some. <laughs> I talked about it in my office today. Um, no, I think it's indexed. It's an index that they use, and I was interpreting it that as like a week a weekly cash wage, where it's actually an index of cash wages. Yeah. So okay. So um, don't trust. Don't use the the wage data. Okay. Well, you have the. Uh, let's, let's, let's not talk about, let's, I want to draw attention away from housing co costs first, and then I want to draw it back to housing costs. So the price of fuel in, uh, we go back to 1995, $1.08 a gallon. Now, let's say, let's say 2020 data, because I don't, I don't want to draw crazy attention to 2022 just yet, uh, because there's a lot of major factors that have happened that aren't quite, we have a big spike in mm -hmm. 2022. Uh, but the war in Russia being the major driver, especially there. when it comes to, to gas, not to everything else on here, but yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to pull the 2020 data cause it's the most stable 
for the point that we're making here. So 1995 cost per gallon of fuel, a dollar eight. 2020, two dollars fifty eight. So a dollar fifty yeah. raise. But uh, that, but that 1995 adjust that for inflation, and it's two dollars and four cents. So we, yeah, we don't have a huge, uh, we don't have a huge jump in gas prices. Milk, uh, back in 1995. Two dollars forty-seven cents for a gallon. Yeah. Today, a gallon of milk three ninety-two. Yeah. So Adjust the ninety-five figure for inflation. What do you get? Four dollars and sixty-six versus today's three dollar ninety-two. So the cost of milk actually has decreased. Mm -hmm. So let's go back. Oh, you you don't have this. Uh, I'm gonna have to freeze the first two columns here, or at least column number one. Okay, so I'm gonna freeze column number one. And let's hit the new vehicle price. Uh, so new vehicle, 1990, 13000 In today's dollars, roughly 30000 uh, New vehicle in 2020, 25000 So it looks like the cost of the average new vehicle has gone down just a hair. We'll call yeah, that but if you look at the 22, like I, I <clears throat> included the 2022 figures because a lot has changed because all of my figures are referenced from January of that year. So January of 2020, very different than even June of 2020, let alone today. Well, January 2020 was not in the pandemic. No. And you, got, you got average cost of a new car, 25000 January 2022, this year, Average cost of a new car, 47000 mm -hmm. So almost double the cost of a car. And I can tell you, I've been to the, the Audi dealership near me. Th these guys are telling me how much they're selling over sticker, how they can't keep cars in the lot. Uh, just truly, truly wild. A lot of that supply chain. A lot of um, that's also salesmanship. Yeah, well, sure. Fair enough. Yeah, these guys are... Uh, I mean, they're taking advantage of the market. And they're no, they're, they're telling you, yeah, these things are going over sticker, so that way you won't haggle with them. Oh, I'm not buying any cars. They're yeah, just, but you know what I mean. But, uh, but yeah, that's also a great sales tactic. You know? <laughs> um, but, but, yeah, so w the average cost of a vehicle actually hasn't really increased. It may have actually decreased. If you're not counting the pandemic. Uh, if and, you don't count the last two years, but I think you have to. Last year and a half, we'll call it. Last year and a half. Okay. I but, but I think if we were to look at this 10 years from now, this would be a blip and we'd be closer back to our original trend. It line. might be because like cars are a special case because one of the biggest supply chain constraints right now is with silicon and chips. Yeah. Because today's cars have so many stupid computers in them that the manufacturers might be able to build everything in the car except for all the crazy computers they have in them, but that okay. torpedoes yeah. the whole car. Yeah, you're not selling that car. Uh, but I'd, I would like you to draw so far that milk, fuel, cars, the prices really haven't risen that very much. No, they're uh, all pretty stable, really. They're, they're all pretty stable. Now, I want to hit the TV, the TV numbers. So uh, I looked back at the Sears catalog. Can uh, I make a prediction here? Yeah, make the prediction. I'm curious. My prediction is that the cost of a TV in inflation-adjusted dollars has gone way down. <laughs> okay, well, you can you could throw the inflation on here if you want, uh, but but yeah, give me have, years add, add and column, I've got I've got the calculator. U. Add column U. I'll give you the numbers. So so look at column U. 
put in the put in the actual number. Yeah. So a a brand new uh, console TV uh, in oh let's do the 1985 actually. So 1985. I looked at the Sears catalog. Most expensive TV. Uh, Two thousand nine hundred seventy nine dollars. Twenty nine hundred in nineteen eighty five. Nineteen eighty five. I need you to add one more column though, actually, uh, for the cheapest TV. Okay. I think the cheapest TV actually is a better indicator. Okay, go ahead. Okay. So you got the cheapest TV in nineteen eighty five in the Sears catalog, two hundred forty nine dollars. So the cheapest you can get a TV in nineteen eighty five two hundred forty nine dollars. Now. Uh, I checked, so I have 1980 data. I never input the 1990 data. Let's let's ignore it though. Uh, so I looked at the most expensive TV 2022, and it was 15 grand. In 2022? Yeah, it was a 98 inch Samsung Smart TV. <laughs> so just wild. Uh, the by the way, the Sears TV back in uh, 19. 80 1985 were console tvs where the selling points were like the dovetailing of the drawer like just yeah completely different so you're talking okay. about you're, um, hold on now now i want to give you the cheapest tv 2022 cheapest okay. tv 2022 111 dollars 13 okay. inch 13 inch tv and the one i gave you from 1985 also 13 inch tv uh so so you got a 111 dollar tv in 2020 for 13 inch in adjusted inflation dollars. The 1985 $249 TV would be $665 today. Yeah. So roughly a 600% decrease in television price. So the point is that some things are actually getting cheaper year after year. And, and that, which is some things, not everything. The, the, not the, only that, the, tw like the, the 13 inch, console like uh like it's gonna probably be an lcd screen or something like the 2022 cheap tv is going to be light years better than the 1985 yeah. tv this one was portable by the way it's a portable 13 inch tv you just plug and play maybe it's got a battery pack on it yeah uh, so like but, imagine like how much do you think that would cost like n never mind the fact that they couldn't manufacture something like that not, 1985 <laughs> No, it would have it would have been like a like a fifty five thousand dollar piece of technology. Like yeah. aliens delivered this. Um, but look now, so we're saying that inflation has kind of had an overall trend that isn't vastly higher or lower when it comes to fuel, milk, cars, electronics. Let's look at homes. So yeah. you have a nineteen eighty. Let's just use the inflation adjusted dollars because that's easier. I think I think it's good to have both. Okay, just be, I'll, I'll, I'll give you both. But a home in 1980, $63,000. In adjusted for inflation, this is what you should really be looking at it, 222000 So uh, that same home today, let's just skip. Nobody needs all, all this data. You, if you guys want to email us, we'll, we'll send you the whole spreadsheet. Um, but well, I think let's just I, I want to race through it real quick. I'm going to give just the just inflation adjusted years. dollars every in every 10 years. years. Okay. So 1980, $222,000, $1990, $272,000, $272,000. You're just throwing numbers out there. Somebody's yeah. listening. All right. So $1990, $272,000, $2,276,000, $2010, $294,000, $2020, $294,000, $2021, $296,000, $2022, $296,000, $2023, $296,000, $2024, $296,000, $2025, $296,000, $296,000, $296,000, $296,000, $296,000, $
2022-429. Which is almost double of of what it would have cost. Yeah, and this is using all inflation-adjusted dollars. So this is not like, yeah, like money was just cheaper back then. No, it's you're spending almost double for a house today than you were 40 years ago. Yeah, so a, a house 40 years ago was 63000 Today, it's 430000 Now, when you adjust the old number for inflation, you have 222000 We're still a 100% increase. Yep. Which, which none of the other things that we talked about trend up like that at all. Milk has trended The only down. other thing that trends up like that would be college education and that, possibly health care so the college education one was one that i thought was very a very important point to make when it comes to the one of the barriers to barriers of entry to home ownership is that you have 22 year olds leaving school owing 80 grand 160 grand a grand in debt and you didn't have that 40 years ago or even nope. 20 years ago. So no. the barrier of entry on top of just the purchase price is somebody who's already saddled with an enormous debt already. Yeah, you, you're, you're already paying a mortgage and you don't have a house. Yeah, very good point. Very good point. Let's see. I want to I add some Look, more. I want to get, we got 15 minutes left. I think we need to move to what are some potential solutions here? How do we fix this problem? Because one of the questions that I've asked a number of people is I look at the situation, like when I saw that article today about how builders can't build homes because the people who build the homes can't afford to live in the area where they want to build homes. I'm thinking, this is not a sustainable situation. So uh, let's talk about sustainability. I want to give you another. So this Slate.com article you had about, was it BlackRock buying properties? Yep. Um, and... I think they said that corporate investors have bought 15% of the homes on the market in the first quarter of this year. Right, but and, uh, the, and like you also have to factor in that 15% is focused mostly in the areas of first-time home buyers' targets. So let's talk about unsustainability because and this isn't from the article, but this is my take. Uh, you know, investment firms are buying the the homes, and that's driving home prices up, but. The argument for that would be, well, that's capitalism, and America is a capitalist society. And the way that I look at pure capitalism is like this. Uh, you ever played Monopoly before? Okay, everybody's played Monopoly before. Now, you get six players. Monopoly could be a six-player game, and I'm, I'm adding six players. You could go with fewer players. But Typically, only, it's played with four. It'll only prove my point more so. The, so adding six players actually dissolves my point a little bit. But you get six players. They all start equal amount of money in the bank. They all start at the same place, equal odds. The greater amount of time that you play Monopoly, what happens? Well, when the game is played properly by all players, eventually one player will have everything and the other players will have nothing. So as you play Monopoly, everyone goes broke. That's except pure, for one person. Except for one person. That's that's pure capitalism. Do you, do you, do you know that, that that's the reason that Monopoly was designed? Was to, like, as an illustration of what can go wrong with capitalism? I, I didn't know that was why, but, but that's what pure capitalism is. And that's when we're talking about solutions, that's where we are right now. It's a capitalist society. Let the investment companies buy the property. They should have every right to do so. 
And, and you know, and I was thinking about like what, how likely is a crash going to happen? But I'm thinking if you have these investments being made by corporations, corporations typically make wiser and more sound financial decisions than most individual people. Because they have the resources to be able to research things more, and they can also afford to 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 well, cut getting, risk. They're getting better deals, though. Not necessarily. They might be paying they have, more in the, in the short term. They like with them they making might pay a, more on the surface for purchase price, but they're paying lower in interest. Oh or yeah. they're buying all cash, and they can ride it out on smaller margins than anyone else can. So on the surface, they might pay more. For the home, but they're gonna even if they if they pay an extra fifty grand on top of the purchase price and pay in cash, what are you paying on a th what are you paying on a thirty year mortgage? Way more than fifty grand. Yeah, five. Uh, and right now, the average mortgage rates are five and a half percent. Most of like any of these giant giant investment capital firms don't have a cost of capital anywhere near five and a half percent. Yeah. So, so they're not paying overall what you're paying overall. They may pay a no. higher upfront cost, but that's because they're winning on the back end. But it's also like they can afford to kite risk, where if I'm an investor and like I'm putting all of my money into like I've got enough money to afford one investment property, and I put all my money into that, and something goes wrong, I'm wiped out. But if I've got a billion dollars then one, my risk is spread out over multiple properties. And two, even if there's a general economic downturn, I can afford to wait it out for the other side of the cycle. Yeah, and that's, that's why it's un, unfair as it is. Two, two statements I want to make before we talk about solutions, and the second will be the segue into solutions. Uh, another reason why uh, we're not able to keep up with building homes, and this is something I missed a bit earlier, is that zoning and building permits are done on local levels. And the Fed adjusting in, uh, interest rates is they can't adjust zoning and, and building permits. It's not it's not up to the federal government. So it's county by county, state by state getting together to issue these things. It's it can't come directly from the top. Um, uh, real quick, you want to hit Jeff's comment about individual investors turning to syndicates? Uh, it seems that people who were individual investors are now turning to syndicates. This past year alone, I was asked to join four different syndic syndications. So that's on the in, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it's just there's there's even even for people that want to be individual investors, there's heavy pressure from large cor corporate influences to either join them and like be part of their system or sell to them. Yeah, it, it's it's uh, it's just it, that's also working against the initial home buyer. Yep. Uh, you know, which is really what we're talking about now. Uh, we're not so much talking about investors, so even though I do think that that's small investors are very important. I think the enemy here is the is the conglomerate corporations that are the giant investors. All right. And so point here's, two here's and the solutions. Here's here's the statement that came from the current administration, but was given anonymously to uh, Politico. Politico. Uh, they said. Uh, we don't ask the question, can we solve the challenge entirely? It's, can we make a difference? Now, to me, that's the exact solution that is the worst solution that you could ever have when it comes to governing anything. That's your, your bubblegum and duct tape type solution. That's, we're not going to look at a solution for the whole problem. We're just going to try to like change a couple of things and hopefully it'll slow down. But it, it, 
that's that's the same well, way that we treat our health crisis in the United States. We're not going to try to solve the health crisis from the the cause. We're just going to kind of put some band-aids over the effect. Right. And so the, think- it's two different approaches and it what you're what you're getting at is is the system itself broken and needs to be completely reworked or is the system good and we just need to make some tweaks to the way that it functions. And I think when it comes to both healthcare and housing, right now the system itself is broken. And making small changes aren't going to work. So what so what is what are we looking at then in terms of solutions for for this housing crisis, how are we competing against giant conglomerate uh, in, investment companies? Um, number one, I think what you do is at the local level, property taxes. You you make you have two rules. You have rent Ooh, controls. Like okay. So you have rent controls where, based on the purchase price of a house, there's a maximum amount that you can charge and rent based on the, on the most recent person purchase price. Wait, so you're restricting rent? Yeah. So that way, because look, this is, this is going to work in tandem with the other idea, which is, give me me the other idea. The other idea is, and most localities do this, but if a property is purely a rental as in non-owner occupied, it's property tax rate is significantly higher than if it were an owner-occupied. But that makes it that much more difficult for smaller investors. That makes it even, even that, that gives smaller investors a, it makes it impossible for smaller investors and makes it still just as possible for giant conglomerate investors. So Jeff, so, is, a, Jeff is a smaller uh, real estate investor. He's not going to be able to compete against BlackRock if the local taxes go up. So here's what you can do then. Because is I think you need you to can have... make it so that the the increased property tax hit only applies to entities that have an EIN. If you're an individual investor and the property is owned under your social security number, then you get a break on the property tax hit. But if it's owned by a corporation that has an EIN, they don't get that, that uh, break. But, but nobody would ever put rental property in their name exclusively because that would be a recipe to be fucking decimated by anybody who stubs their toe on the staircase. I think it needs to be based off of your total. It needs to be more of an income-based tax. Uh, and, you know, I, I'm not, you know, nobody wants to be increasing the taxes, but if you are... You're not a, increasing taxes on the people that are going to feel it. I think it would need to be an income-based tax uh, because that, to me, is the only thing that would seem to not destroy the everyman property investor. Uh, well, know, the problem has, is that most of these rentals, units. when it comes to income tax, most of these rentals are going to be generating a loss or a wash due to the way that depreciation works. Okay, sure. But there's a, I don't know how much property Jeff owns, but I can tell you somebody who owns four fam- or, two, or two families to 20 families uh, versus somebody who owns a thousand to ten thousand rental units uh, are at at vastly different income levels. Yeah, but it's still each property is done individually. So 
if you if you're taking a single family residence, you're depreciating that over a 27 and a half year period. So one 27 and a half of that property is a depreciation expense. So if your rent is a little bit more than the cost of the mortgage, you're going to be showing a loss for that rental, despite the fact that you actually made a profit because you're taking depreciation on that property. So you can depreciate 100% over 27 years? You have to, not can, it's you, you, you must. So, the, so effectively the value of that home would be zero after 27 years. Right, so after 27 and a half years, if you sell that house, yeah. I buy the house for $200,000 in 27 and a half years, I wanna sell it. Every dollar that I make on that house is going to be profit. I'm not going to be able to deduct any of the cost of my purchase of that house against the sale what, because what, it was it was depreciated and expensed prior. Would every person depreciate the value of the house? Or um, if it's a rental more? property, then yes. Mm. The like, if you own your house, so like your house, you're not taking depreciation expense, but you're also not going to have to. So you don't get the, the the deduction now, but you also don't have a lower value of your house when you have to sell it. Your basis in the house is the same as what you paid. Now, if you were to move and you were to start renting out your house, the day you start renting is the day that you start taking depreciation expense on your taxes for that house. And that reduces the value that you get to claim for purchase on that. So, okay, fair enough. So I think, most I think rentals, you know, Jeff's saying that he's got 18, 18 units here. And I think that that's exactly the type of person that I'm talking about that needs the protection. Somebody, you know, somebody who's not going to be able to compete with someone who has 10,000 or a corporation that has 10,000 units. And we need to be looking at legislation, not well, at bubblegum. And so here's the problem, people. though, is like if you say that like an entity can't own more than, let's say, 50 properties, I'm just picking a number. OK, so if I'm BlackRock and I own. 10,000 properties and the new law comes out and says I can't own more than 50 and as BlackRock am I selling off 9,900 units no what I'm doing is I'm creating 200 LLCs that are all subsidiaries of my main company and each one of those LLCs owns 50 properties each so uh, that's that's right so look I want to I want to have another five or so minutes of this conversation uh, we will end our live stream at roughly one hour in roughly two minutes. So I want to thank you guys for joining us live. Stay tuned if you're on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Twitch, or TikTok. Those of you watching us live on Instagram, make sure you subscribe and feel free to transfer over to any other platforms. Um, we'll be taking a quick and abrupt break in about uh, two minutes. But uh, let the conversation continue until we hit that music cue. So what you're saying, James, is exactly right, is that a company that has 10,000 units is just going to segment down to 10,000 divided by 50 or whatever that, whatever that multiple is, that, mm -hmm. that, the cap of the units. And what I'm saying is that maybe it shouldn't be on a per unit basis, but it should be on an overall income basis. And... You're going to have the same problem I with just a have, different well, I divisor. Think, I think you would have that same problem also. But at some point, the conglomerate, the over, the the umbrella organization that's owned by stockholders, right? This is a publicly traded company, Black BlackRock. Yes, but not all the not all the companies that are doing this crap are publicly traded. 
Uh, I know, which <laughs> throws another uh, throws another wrench in my in my in my thinking, and that's and that's why it can't just be yeah we're gonna what was the statement? The statement said uh, if we can make any difference, that's what matters. But but well, the goal the problem is how do you combat this? Because I, well, hold on. Here here's my issue though. It's just that the <laughs> the goal needs to be a great. The goal needs to be unattainable, right? The goal isn't to solve the problem. The goal is to is to make some changes no the goal is to solve the problem what we're going to start with is as many changes as we can conceive um and what we're having a conversation right now isn't like one or two minor things we we're trying to have a conversation about a couple of bigger ideas and you know i think we need to have real estate investors and people who own property as well as having individual owners of property and having some bigger owners of property that's our music cue so let me uh let me pause we'll say adios on the instagram people thank you instagram for joining us catch you guys next time all right we are out of instagram uh everybody who's still watching thank you for joining us hey ladies on tiktok nice to see you uh jeff i'm hoping you're still here for the conversation so my question to everyone then is what what do we do? What what is a good solution? Is it a tax solution? Is it a well, banning? I think the property tax buying? solution is one. But the property tax solution hurts the smallest owners the most. Just like the smallest owners are the ones that are in really bad shape right now because of the eviction moratorium. Yeah. So you know, I like think Jeff you, saying he's got Jeff saying he's got eight. Sorry to interrupt you. Jeff saying he's got eighteen units. What happens if he's got four people that just stop paying rent for two years? There's there's all of his profits and then some. Well, yeah, no, I, I I get that, but it's to to like, you know what? Like if you if you're in a position where you've got a home where people haven't paid rent for two years or something like that might be a house that you might need to sell and let somebody else deal with it. And like, yeah, it it's that's what you're going to have to do. That's yeah. what you have to do. Um, but you're, of course, you're not going to get the real value of the house because it, you have tenants who aren't paying rent. So that that yeah, and, then, and that's going to really hamper your ability to sell the house for anything close to what it's worth because they're inheriting a liability in the fact that somebody's still living there. Yeah. Um. So I, I, I still come back to you need to limit the ability of corporations to be owning these single-family houses. I don't have an issue with corporations owning like these big multi-unit like multi-unit or apartment complexes or something like that because that's, that's a different market segment. And that's, but the, the, the issue is single-family. The issue, the differentiation here and the thing that, that has bothered you the most is the single-family. And that's, you know, that's, you see a lot more of that single family homeownership. I, you know, because I work in New York City, there's a lot more of the people who own multiple properties. Uh, but, but, but therein lies the, the conundrum is where do you draw these lines? Single family, I think if we're drawing any lines, that would be a, a really good place to start. Um, but so all right, we can agree that like limiting the ability of corporations to buy single family homes for rental purposes is, is, is good, but I don't know how you go about doing it because as we said, like if you say you can't own more than 10 or 50 or whatever, then any firm that has half a brain is just going to 
like split off x number of subsidiaries to to find like that's a it's an easily exploitable loophole and i don't know how you close that um i'm seeing something here solution is to uh classify basic human needs as basic human needs and on entity on such profits are taxed at a hundred percent and that would include the sale of the house when you drop the property so what, 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 why would we tax anything at 100 percent yeah what where but, are you reading this or that's a um, private comment you have like yeah that kevin sounds, sounds like kevin a, a private a comment from someone I yeah was, i'll finish the sentence but from someone very liberal so yeah well taxing anything so, at 100 percent is, is yeah you can't not, i don't think you can tax it 100 percent. but like the, the 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 problem with an income tax based solution is the depreciation like that's written into federal law that's just how income tax at the federal level works is if you have a business property it will be depreciated based on its classification a single family family home is going to depreciate over 27 and a half years so if you've got a mortgage that's costing like you, you let's say the house cost you two hundred and seventy five thousand dollars that's ten thousand dollars a year in depreciation expense if that mortgage is costing you fifteen hundred a month and then you've got some nominal amount of repairs, let's say $5,000 worth of repairs a year, which is a pretty reasonable figure on a house that expensive. Mm-hmm. So you take 5,000 plus 1,500, or 1,500 times 12 is 18,000. So 18,000 plus 5,000 plus 10,000, you've got $33,000 of expenses. So as long as the rental, if you're charging less than $2,750 per month on that house, then you're showing a loss and you have no taxable income. Yeah. Well, There's no income tax on that because you're showing a loss on it. So, yeah, you've got the property tax that you're paying to the local, but we already said that you can't, we're not going to jack up the, pro- the, the property tax rates on these rentals any more than it already is. So you can't tax rental income on that. And the problem is there's another thing in federal law called a like-kind exchange where if you sell a property so people are going to hold properties for 27 years and then exchange it for something comparable 27 years later yeah and then they can defer the tax on that where like that $270,000 gain that they would have shown or more they can roll that into the next property and kind of shunt off the tax liability for another 27 and a half years are they um, are they just kicking it down or are they replacing that liability because they're making They're not money? replacing the liability because if let's say I I bought the house for 270 and now it's worth zero after 27 and a half years according to tax mm-hmm. and I buy a $500,000 property and I do a like kind exchange that $500,000 property comes to me I don't pay any income tax I, I don't pay any income tax on the gain that I had on the sale of the pro- of the property the and I but now my new basis in the $500,000 house is 230 so that depreciation basically just carries forward into the next property. Well, so what if you bought a new place for two, uh, for whatever amount that was? What was the original amount? Two seventy, okay. two seventy-five. So I bought the place for two seventy-five, and let's just for the the absolute simplest case, I sold it for two seventy-five. Yeah. Okay. And then you bought another place at two seventy-five. Now my basis in that new place is zero. Okay. So then, so then, what happens twenty-seven years from now? Same thing. Well, no, no. Let's say you don't do a like kind exchange. What does your tax bill look like? You sell it for two seventy five. You're going to be ta- paying capital gains tax on two hundred seventy five thousand. Oh, but not on five hundred fifty thousand. 
well, if you bought it for five hundred and fifty thousand, then the no, 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 but you bought it for two seventy five. It's just you depreciated, did a like kind, paid no tax. Mm-hmm. So you didn't kick the tax bill down the. Yeah, you did. Not not your two seventy. You just started over. You hit a reset button. No, you didn't. You didn't. If you but bought you... the place for five hundred and fifty, so I I no, buy no. place one for two seventy five. Yeah. Over twenty seven and a half years, it goes down to zero, and I took okay. the expense every single year. And you sell it for two seventy five. That's sell it but for two seventy five. In this moment, you owe tax on two seventy five. But but two weeks later, you buy another place two seventy five. Now, so that new have... place is also worth. If I do the like kind exchange and it's structured properly, then the new place that I bought for two seventy five has a tax basis of zero. I don't have any taxable. I don't have any taxable gain on the place I just sold, mm-hmm. and the place I just bought is worth zero as far as tax goes. Okay, so 27 years later, you and you sell it for 275 again. You're paying that. You're paying tax on 275. Yes. But you're not paying tax on 550. No. Okay, so so that sounds wonderful. <laughs> so I, I right, especially reason, when you consider that real estate tends to appreciate. If I buy a place for 275 now, 27 and a half years later, I I like kind out of it. Like I'm paying. I can take the 275,000 and roll that into the next property. So I bought the next property for a million. So now that property has a basis of like eight uh, of 725. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but but you just you you just made a bunch of money actually 27 right. years from now. So. I'd still have to pay gain on like the amount above the 275. So I sold it for like 300. Then I'd still have to pay the gain on the, that 25,000 and that 275 gets rolled into the next. Yeah. So, so, so look, like it's, income well, tax just, wise, it's tough to do that because as long as you're charging rents that are like just marginally above your your mortgage and repair servicing costs, then you're going to be showing a loss on this, and there's no income taxable. Yeah. So, so, so that, that doesn't disincentivize income, yeah. these people. So I I don't think tonight we are going to come up with a decent solution in any way, shape, or form. Uh, I think it's something worth thinking about but i think at this point it's it's very similar to say how are we going to you know build a colony on mars and and you know move there in the next 10 years it's it's like not it's that it's it's, i think the solution is that we need to get corporations out of owning and renting single family homes how do we do it but you're but see your focus is on single family mine is more encompassing mine is also on the multifamily market because it's it's hurting people like jeff and other smaller investors so i you know i think it needs to be it it needs to but be i'm not i'm not concerned about the people that are trying to invest like if you want to be a real estate investor good on you but i don't think that those are the people that need the help the people that need the help are the people that are 26 or 27 years old that have decent income and can't afford to buy a house. Those are the people that I care about. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think they should get some priority. But if but you also, have the oh, money to be able to buy an investment property, you aren't the the, the problem needing but, a solution. But, I, but I've, I have seen prior to this last two years uh, with the legislation and then the uh, eviction moratorium, small time investors be hurt a lot more than uh, in, in, in a lot more numbers uh, than people who are simply looking to buy their first home. So I, I think that the problem is like, if you're looking to buy investment properties and, and that's how you like, like to me, 
that's a luxury to be able to do. Whereas these people that are just trying to buy a home are trying to fill a need. So I don't think that comparing the two is even remotely reasonable because one of these is I want to just make some supplemental income by investing in real estate versus I would like to own a home that will grow value for me. But I think we're, we're talking about a very similar issue. All right. So if you get a soccer field where a bunch of people are spraining their ankles and you're saying you're worried more about offense in midfield and I'm saying, yeah, but why don't we look at the whole field and maybe it's an issue with the actual terrain. Like we should be fixing the terrain for everybody, not just offense and midfield because, because they're all playing the game. The, you know, the issue is that the people that own the field basically are, are winning all and the, these big time investors is, and Jeff saying this is a full-time job. He, he, you know, he, it, you know, it's, it's a luxury in the sense, and, what he, and his question is, this is my full-time job. How is that a luxury? And the issue is that he's working at this full-time. Uh, to somebody who doesn't have any property at all, they look at you and say, you have so much more than me. You're in a more luxurious position because you have more. And that's why these two people, the small investor and the first-time homebuyer, can't get on the same page. Because they, they, they don't see, and I'm not saying that Jeff's saying this or the small-time investor or the, sm the first-time buyer is saying this, but I can tell you, they don't realize they're fighting the same battle. Uh, and the, and the first-time home buyer looks at a small investor like Jeff the same way they look at a BlackRock. And that's, that's not a means to a solution. There's a lot more first-time home buyers and small investors than there are companies like BlackRock. And unfortunately, also for the first time home buyers, they're going to need people who have more money than they do, like the small time investors to pull resources and say, hey, it's, it's not fair for us guys that work full time to support housing and take care of renters. Uh, you know, we're all being fucked by the big time conglomerate corporations buying all the property. And, and, yeah. and, and that free market capitalism is not something that's going to be sustainable in the United States. We need, so, we need a different approach. Let me let me say why a first-time home buyer would look at somebody like Jeff, who I understand that the, your your full-time job is managing your rentals, but to put myself in the shoes of a first-time home buyer that can't afford to buy a home, I would uh, now I'm going to make an assumption here that that Jeff owns these properties or he owns the company that owns these properties. So I, if I look at myself as a first-time home buyer, I say you own 18 properties. If they stop making income, you've got these millions of dollars worth of properties that you can sell and have money. Whereas like I can't, yeah, so 12 LLCs, right? So like, but if they're owned fully by you, then like when you sell that, you get to keep the profits well, or you're saying even just the, has, the assets. If so, shit like, if, goes bad for him, he has something to fall back on. Whereas somebody who's renting and trying to buy, but can't, if they can't afford their rent, they don't have anything to fall back on. Yeah, it's the like issue, it, but the issue here is, and this is this is the big issue, is somebody looks at somebody who has more and says, I want to take from them. And or, or you know, they're they have more than I do, so I deserve to have more. That's not the issue. What I'm saying is we level the playing field, but we don't take from the smaller people. It, I, it, I would agree with that. And I think and like I know that I'm kind of dishing on in in, in real estate well, investors and rentals, but I want to say that like 
like rentals serve an important role in the market and it's important that there are rental properties out there available for people because not everybody wants to buy you might want to just live in a city for two or three years before you move and buying doesn't make sense but renting does so it's an important role that they're they're serving and i would agree with you that yeah the small-time investors need help in in similar ways that first-time home buyers do but first-time home buyers are going to look at somebody that has 18 properties worth a couple million dollars and say if something goes wrong, you've got a couple million dollars effectively in the bank, and I don't. Maybe, or more liability. It may not be all the, the buildings may not all be paid off. The issue is that taking either side of this is detrimental to the total solution. So you can take the liberal side of this, or you can take the conservative side, uh, free market. Neither one gets to a solution where anybody wins. And if, if you have basically the liberal solution is we turn it all into public housing. That's, you know, that, that's, that's, that's the, the extreme case. That, I don't but, think that's, that... but, but if you're leaning that way, guess what? That's the scales tend to tip the way that things are leaning. So we, that's where we end up because you end up electing officials that being, or end up being super liberal and, and they care about the super liberal. If we go free market, um, and we, you know, then we end up in this monopoly solution where yeah, where BlackRock owns work. everything, and everybody's renting from BlackRock. So, so the solution needs to be more down the middle line, but it can't be well. If we do something, that's the best we can do. So we need to focus on doing something. That's 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 where you have solutions that don't make sense, and that's why we have so much disruption and discontentment with the coronavirus pandemic because you have people making dumbass laws that don't make fucking any sense whatsoever uh and and because you have two sides that don't agree on anything trying well, not to yeah. strike agreements you so, had some dumb laws that went too far one way and then you had some dumb laws that went too far the other way in terms of like mandating masks in places where they probably weren't needed or some states mandating that masks weren't allowed to be weared or worn yeah well, not that they weren't or, or like preventing or preventing places from being able to institute reasonable mass mandates. It, it just it just doesn't make sense. So so the issue is that, you know, when you have two sides that don't that can't see the common ground, then everybody loses. So, so let's establish what the common ground is here. Well, we we got a wrap and I don't I don't let's I'll, I'll give it a shot, but I don't know necessarily we're going to come to a a final solution here i think that we the common don't like ground, the final solution the, the the final solution needs to be that property values can't be taken off the way that they are now and the reason they're taking off is because of these conglomerate companies so something needs to be done about them would you agree with me there yeah i i would agree and say that like this the the appreciation in real estate right now is unsustainable in in our longer term goals because it's going to make it so that large portions of the population can't afford to buy a house and because like home ownership is one of the main ways that people build wealth by owning something that they can kind of just have and i, I will agree with you there and that's one of the biggest racial disparities yeah. And so like the the lar the 
the large amount of corporate cash that has flooded the market and like by these firms specifically targeting like down market and well not down market but like middle market or like slightly below middle market homes that are exactly the kinds of places that a first time buyer would want to buy that's the problem um and it's not small investors that are doing it so much it's really the big play the, the big players like blackrock and so how do you curtail that i don't know and jeff says in my area the individual sellers are asking way more than what they should in in this area the large companies are eating up all the renters so i think well, well, sellers that's... asking more than they should like that's that's a market solution we're like if you're asking more than what you should, then you just won't get offers. The issue is the buying power of the, the mega corporation. I, I think that a, a seller should ask as, as much as they... I, I, I mean, again, this is where you, you strike that fair market, uh, you know, this fair market line. What's fair market? Because you would think that it's a seller's duty to ask as much as possible. Um, but then you have buyers that nobody can compete with that are paying these prices. What you're saying is that sellers will ask so much, but then the buyers have to pay it. But the problem is that buyers are paying it, and these buyers are are big companies. I agree. So um, that is a – and where do you draw that line between what's a small company and a big company? It's really – Well, and, and, and even once you draw that line – how do you enforce it without having easily exploitable loopholes? Yeah, like a big company just segmenting into smaller companies. That all feed to one company in the end, that's, but legally my, speaking, they're separate companies. That was my umbrella analogy oh. with, with stockholders. But no, yeah, yeah. you're just you're repeating it. I'm, I'm agreeing with you. Um, look, we're not going to solve this tonight. Uh, I think we need to think on it. Anybody who has some thoughts and feelings on this, Make sure you subscribe to this podcast on YouTube where you can leave comments below. I would love to hear your comments about this episode, episode 182. We've got to thank Isn't, Jeff for all his good input. Yeah, Jeff is, I think Jeff is a really good person to bridge the gap as a smaller investor with, with 18 properties. Maybe ask him if he can come on sometime. I think, I think Jeff would be a, a really good person. Uh, I, I think I tried to put Jeff in touch with my friend Jamie, who's joined us before, the real estate attorney. Mm -hmm. I don't know if they're in touch, but, uh, but they both kind of speak from the, the, the same perspective. So, Jeff, maybe, maybe we'll bring you on if you're open to that. Uh, but again, make sure you guys subscribe on YouTube, any of the audio podcast platforms. We love your input. Uh, and you know, I love this topic because we haven't solved it in an hour and a half. Not, Not even close. We, yeah, no, we, uh, we're still we're still kind of circling around an angle to to approach solving it. So, uh, but I want to thank you guys for your time, uh, James. Thank you for being here. A big thanks to Rosh Galeb in the background feeding us your comments live. Thank you, Rosh. Everyone, thank you for coming. On that note, adios. Cheers. All right, that concludes this episode. Let me know what you think. Let me know if you agree, disagree, what we missed, what we left out. Um, and uh, again, just your uh, general philosophy on life. And I'll see you next time. I like PBR. I just got priced out of it.